0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, Back in the uh, 1970s and 80s, there was a uh, stock brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton uh, that had this really memorable um, television ad campaign, and uh, I vividly remember these commercials on TV, even though back then I was a kid, I didn't I didn't even know what a stockbroker was. Um, uh, some would argue I still do not know what a stockbroker bro- stock is. But uh, anyway, this is how a this is how a typical EF Hutton uh, commercial went. Two people are talking over lunch. It's like a business lunch uh, in, in a crowded restaurant. And the first person says, "Well, my broker is really excited about this investment opportunity." What does your broker say? And the second person says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and the entire restaurant goes totally silent. And everybody in the restaurant leans in to listen. And then the tagline, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Now, I did not know what a stockbroker was because I was like in fifth grade. But I knew that when E.F. Hutton spoke... (laughs) I wanted to listen to that guy because he had something to say, apparently. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, for much of American history, the church was kind of like E.F. Hutton in the culture. Like, people wanted to know what the church had to say, not just about religious stuff, about, but about all kinds of things, the economy, politics. The arts and sciences, social issues, people would lean in and say, you know, wait, what does the church have to say? What do Christians think about this? That's how it was for most, or at least much of American history. Not so much anymore, right? And In in, in the broader culture that we live in, uh, we don't find that society necessarily is leaning in and saying, I wonder what the church thinks about this issue. I wonder what Christians have to say. I mean, at best, the, the broader society or culture that we're a part of just sort of ignores what the church has to say or is unaware because they're not involved with the church, with what the church has to say. At worst, the culture might say, I wish Christians would just shut up. And, and sometimes we do need to just shut up, right? Sometimes we need to speak less. But I think in our culture today, there's probably more of a tendency for the culture to try to silence the church. Because your views on things are religiously determined. So y'all just need to be quiet and and reserve your views for Sundays and just keep them there. We're not E.F. Hutton anymore. Our our voice is not the one necessarily that society wants to listen to. Uh, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were in a very similar cultural situation. Theirs was probably uh, more extreme uh, than ours is. Um, He's writing to a people that he calls exiles, meaning they are residents in the society, but it's not their home. They're aliens there. They they, they are, in a sense, uh, uh, cultural outsiders uh, in many ways. But in chapter 2, he says this incredible thing to them. Listen to this. He says, you're a chosen race, you exiles. You're a a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Like, to what end? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What an amazing purpose for the church. What, What an amazing mission to proclaim him. Like to be heralds of the excellencies of God. To to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But that raises the question, how do you proclaim the excellencies of God to a culture in which you have no real voice? To a culture that is really not all that interested in hearing what you have to say. I think it's a good question for us as American Christians today because we are also exiles. And as our, as our culture grows more and more secular, I think we find ourselves more and more as cultural outsiders, meaning we represent Christ, but not from a position of cultural strength. We, we represent Christ kind of from the bottom. Our voice is not the most influential voice in society anymore. Far from it. And so, the question is, how do we proclaim the gospel in a culture where we've lost our voice? Like, how do we talk about Jesus in a culture that is not that interested in hearing what we have to say? Well, Peter, I think in this text today, gives us some direction. I think he's going to say that we should start with good deeds and then move to good words. Like, start with good deeds, then move to good words. And he's going to say that both of them are really important. Like, you can't proclaim the gospel without both of them uh, in, in a true way deeds and words. You can't be a powerful witness in a suspicious culture without both of them deeds, words. So, I want us to look at uh, those two things. Uh, the first thing he says is when, when, we've, when we've lost our voice in a culture, the first thing we need to do is to be zealous for what is good, to be zealous to do what is good. All right, let's focus on that for a few minutes. Look at uh, verse 13. I want you to see the emphasis that Peter puts on doing good in our text. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous or eager For what is good, or to do what is good. Skip down to verse sixteen. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17: For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so the clear call here on on the lives of Christians is is to do good. Peter's been saying that over and over for like four weeks to us. Ever since chapter two, verse 12, he said no less than six times that that God's will for exiles is that we would do good. And then we have three different times today, uh, do good, be about doing good. What's God's will for your life? Do good. Be zealous to do good. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for me and you in a culture to do good where the culture is just kind of suspicious of us. Like, does that mean that we're to sort of kind of pull away from the culture and just focus on our own private morality? Like, is that God's goal for me? Just, Todd, just be a good guy. Like, keep your nose clean. (laughs) Keep all the rules so that when people see you, they'll be like, there goes a good guy. (laughs) He doesn't cheat on his taxes doesn't cheat on his wife, that is a good guy. Is that what Peter is talking about, goodness here? Is he reducing it to just our own private morality? Does doing good here just mean that I should just focus on doing what's good for me and for mine? In in other words, should the church sort of pull away from society and just take care of our own? Should we look out there and say, well, look, The culture is going to pot all around us. This thing is on a slippery slope. I mean, look how secular everything has gotten. And so, we need to circle the wagons and and, and do good for our little community and take care of our own. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think we know that's not what he's saying. Peter is not calling us to isolate, to withdraw from the culture. He's calling us to actually personally engage the culture, to, to encounter people, to be out there with people, and to do good in society, for society, not just for us. Now I think the best example of this that I know of in Scripture comes from the Old Testament, uh, from the prophet uh, Jeremiah. Six hundred years before Peter's day, uh, God's people were carried away by Babylon into exile. Remember, the Jews were taken, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and they were taken away into exile. So, they were uprooted from their land, and they were moved to live in another land. They were uprooted from their culture, and they said, you've got to live in this culture now, right? So, they, they, they were not the dominant voice in the culture, because they had just gotten dominated, right? No, the, the Babylonians were not interested in what the Jews had to say about anything. The Babylonians were never like to the Jews, hey, tell me about your beliefs, I would like to know more about your religious life. Maybe I can come to church with you sometime. That was not the posture that the Babylonians had to the Jews, because the Jews were on the margins. They had no voice. It would have been tempting, I think, for God's people, the Jews at that time, to pull away, to isolate, to circle the wagons, and to create a little subculture and just take care of themselves. But that's not what God wanted for them in exile. God had a different plan for them, and so God sent them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah. And I want you to hear what this letter letter had to say. Let me me just read from you, from, from Jeremiah chapter 29. Listen to this. This is incredible. God speaking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, and then here's God's counsel to the exiles, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile And pray to the Lord on behalf of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where you are exiles. Literally, it says, seek the shalom of the city where you are exiles. You know what shalom is, right? It's just universal human flourishing. It's peace, it's prosperity, it's wholeness, for everyone. Like, it's God's kingdom on display. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are essentially praying, God, bring shalom, right? Now, we know that that will one day happen in full. God's kingdom will come in full when Jesus comes back, and shalom will be established all over the earth. But until that time, God's people are to live out little tastes of shalom for the good of the city, for the good of the culture, not just for themselves, but for everyone. That's what we're to to live for. And so when Peter says, be zealous for what is good, I think that's what he means. I I think he means seek the shalom of the city, like be actively engaged in society, pursue justice, pursue peace, Pursue wholeness. Pursue goodness. Right. The church ought to bring a little taste of God's kingdom to society, just in the way we live in the things that we live for. All right. Now, that can take the form of really big things, uh, but most most often, I think that takes that that being zealous for good takes the form of just really simple, everyday things in your everyday life wherever God has you. Um. It might just mean being a good neighbor to your neighbors. Uh, There is a a woman here in Austin named Kristen Schell. Uh, Some of you may have heard of her. Uh, Kristen um, was trying to figure out how to love her neighbors better. She had lived in the same neighborhood for like 10 years. And she said, yeah, I don't really know my neighbors very well. So how do I love my neighbors if I don't even know them? And then one day she had this really simple idea she had bought a picnic table uh, for a party that she was having, and the picnic table was in her backyard. And she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to paint that picnic table bright turquoise, because it's my favorite color, she said. And I'm going I'm to move that picnic table to my front yard, and I'm going to leave it in my front yard. And every day, I'm just going to go out and sit at the turquoise table, read, work on stuff, say hi to people as they go by. She said, the first day I did it, it was so awkward because, like, what am I doing out there sitting at this table in my front yard? But she said, really, within a couple hours, uh, I had met a neighbor that I'd never met before. This is what she prayed when she went out there that first day. She said, God, I'm just going out in the front yard. And she said, but here I am, God. Your will be done. Go before me, go behind me, go beside me, and do what you want through me and the neighborhood. She met this neighbor and started to talk to her. Do you know that today, that turquoise table is like a community gathering point? Like where she just, people in the neighborhood come just to hang out and talk. And Kristen says, you know what I've learned sitting at that table? God has taught me to listen to people and to be fully present with people. Which is what people need, right? More than anything, Someone to listen to them and to be fully present with them, not on their phone, not doing their to-do list, just being present. That is being zealous to do what is good. All it meant for her was going out in her front yard and saying, God, what do you have for me out in the front yard? It's great. You can be zealous for what is good wherever God has you. It can happen at work. It can happen at school. Like, this is for kids, too, to do this. And I actually think kids sometimes are better at this than, than we are as adults because they don't have the social awkwardness and, and they, just, they just think in terms of like, how can I be good? When uh, one of my daughters was in elementary school, um, we had, this other mom approached us one day and she said, I don't know if you know this, uh, but, but my daughter has some physical disabilities which makes it difficult for her socially at school. And she said, I just want you to know, your daughter is a really good friend to my daughter. She said, you know, she sits with her at lunch. She includes her at recess. I just, I don't know if you knew that. And we were like, no, we did not know that. She has not told us about that. But I'm sure it's due to the outstanding parenting that she's had in in, in her life. That's what it means to be zealous for what is good, right? Do that kind of stuff. Like, wherever you are, at work, at school, like, take the lonely person in the office to lunch and buy him lunch. Stay late at work and help the annoying guy with his project. That's what it means to be zealous for what is good. Now, it can also mean larger scale things. It can mean that we as a church corporately could pursue and be zealous for what is good and seek the welfare of the city together which might mean we we seek to help change systems that are unjust or fix systems that are broken. I got an email uh, last month from a a woman named Julie Corey, who's the executive director of Fostering Hope Austin, uh, which is an organization that helps churches serve the foster care uh, system here in Austin. And and some of you have heard this email. Um, I wanted to read it to you. It's maybe one of the most encouraging emails I've ever gotten. It's not about me. It's about y'all. Listen to what Julie Corey says. She says, hi, Todd. I just wanted to reach out to tell you that I'm hearing a lot of whispering about Providence Church in the foster care community. She said, I often say that social workers and employees of secular organizations in the foster care system are an unreached people group. They are serving the most vulnerable and troubled people in our community, and yet they sometimes see the church as judgmental toward the very people that they're trying to serve. And she says a little church judgment can go a long way. But I wanted you to know that I've heard workers from Child Protective Services, from Aged Out Mentor Programs, and from programs for the hardest kids all say that the really complimentary things about Providence. They've used words like committed, really caring, and they've announced to other groups that the volunteers from Providence Church are really sincere. And she said, this is what I've been hoping for and praying for, that Austin churches would show what we're made of to some of the most challenging people and most difficult systems in our city. Thank you. Isn't that great? That's all because some of you have been seeking together the welfare of the city. You are being zealous for what is good, right? And people Are taking notice. Like, as we seek to proclaim the gospel in a culture where we've lost our voice, being zealous for what is good is one of the most powerful displays uh, and and, and evidences for the goodness and the glory of God, that God is real. Now, does that mean that when we do good, that everyone is going to immediately fall on their knees and, and pray to receive Christ and worship Jesus? No. Like, does it mean that when we do good. The whole city is going to be like, thank you, Christians. We love you. No, actually, Peter says here uh, that you might suffer for righteousness' sake. Like, you might be slandered, he says, for your good works. You, you might suffer for, act, for doing what is good, which we don't like the thought of that. That's actually the model that Jesus gives us, isn't it? Uh, Jesus and First Peter is always not only set apart as our substitute, but also as our example. In verse 18, if you see it, it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, the only totally good person to ever live gave himself away for the welfare of those who weren't good, so that they could have shalom. That's the way of God. That's why God calls us to be zealous to do what's good, because that's how Jesus lived. Here's the cool thing. As you're out there doing good, just in your normal everyday life, you're actually gonna have opportunities to talk to people because you're gonna be with people and you're gonna be getting to know them and they're gonna be getting to know you. And they actually maybe are gonna have questions about you. Like, hey, what's different about you? Like, what's with you? You seem to have some strange beliefs, but I've also noticed that you are loving when you're wronged. I've noticed that you're joyful in the midst of suffering. What is it with you? Wouldn't it be incredible if we actually were different enough that people noticed that? Listen, as you're out there getting to know people and they're getting to know you, that's when you have to use your words. That's when you have to use your voice. Peter says, the second thing is, not only do we need to be zealous for what is good, but secondly, we've got to speak up. About our hope. Let's look at this for a second. Speak up about our hope. This is the second thing about how we proclaim the gospel in a culture where we've lost our voice. Because even in a culture like that, we're going to have lots of opportunities to use our voice, certainly in one on one situations with people. Um, I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking, you know, you can't actually proclaim the gospel really, at the end of the day, without using words, right? You can't make disciples of Jesus without speaking about Jesus in some way, right? And, and, and ma- it makes many of us nervous. It feels a little scary to think I'm going to be Johnny on the spot and have to share the gospel with someone. But I want you to know that's God's plan for us, right? That's His purpose for us. That's His mission, that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His light, and God cares more. God's with you in those conversations. He cares more about those conversations than you do. Now, look at verse 15. I just want to spend the rest of our time exploring this little verse for a second. Verse 15. Look what it says about speaking up about our hope. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so maybe your good deeds have caused someone to take notice, and now it's time to speak good words to them. It's time to speak up about your hope. What do we learn in this verse about what it means to speak up about our hope? Well, I just want to mention three things. It's the three sections of this verse. The first thing we learn is that we actually, we got to make sure that Jesus is actually our hope. We got to settle that first. Is Jesus actually our hope? Look at the first part of the verse. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Holy means, means set apart. It, It means that Jesus is set apart in our hearts from, from all the other things in our heart. All the other things we might tend to put our hope in. Jesus is in a different category. Our hope is in the things that we think will ultimately save us or give us true significance or give us long-lasting satisfaction. And what Peter is saying here is, is is your hope Christ? Have you set them apart as holy in your life? Like, are you convinced in your heart of hearts that nothing else and no one else can save you or give you significance or give you satisfaction? As American Christians… Listen, we've never been forced to choose between Jesus and our lives, have we? Like, we've never faced the prospect of martyrdom. No no one has ever forced us, hey, do you choose Jesus or do you choose all this other stuff? Now, I consider it a blessing that I haven't faced martyrdom like some of my brothers and sisters around the world have. But here's the danger in that. The danger is I could actually just play the Christian game. I could pay lip service to Jesus. I could say I love Jesus and then at the same time put all my hope in the same thing everybody else is putting their hope in. The American dream, my career, my wife, my kids, my stuff. What Peter is saying here, is Jesus actually your hope? Have you set him apart in your heart? Is a different category, all right? The second thing is We've got to be able to talk about why Jesus is our hope. Look look at the second part of the verse. We've got to be able to talk about why Jesus is our hope. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this verse used to really put me under the pile. Because what it sounds like is, I've got to be prepared at all times to make this really elaborate defense for why I believe what I believe, which means, it just sounds like a lot of homework to me. I've got to read a bunch of apologetics books, I've got to study up on the, the evidence of the authority of Scripture, I need, I need to know the difference between like the teleological argument and the ontological argument, and I've got to be able to talk about, I've got to have a good answer for the problem of evil. And I'm like, dude, that just sounds overwhelming, I'm not doing that verse. I want you to notice what Peter is saying here. He's saying, you've got to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, personally. That's it. Like, I don't have to be prepared, Peter, for every difficult theological or philosophical question that's coming my way. I don't have to be prepared to give a defense of miracles. I don't have to be prepared in in, in any conversation to sort out the creation evolution thing. Or to give a definitive answer about whether or not there were dinosaurs on the ark. (laughs) Those are good things maybe to read about and investigate and study. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, no, just be prepared to speak about why Jesus is your hope personally. Like, can you do that? He uses courtroom language. He says, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. What do you do when you're called upon to give testimony in a courtroom? Well, you just tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right? You, you speak about what you know, what you've seen. You're not making stuff up. You're not trying to talk about stuff that you don't know about. You're just saying what you know, what's true in your experience. That's what it means to give testimony. What Peter is saying is, is when you're asked, why is Jesus your hope? Why is Jesus set apart to give you hope in life over all other things? Why is that? Can you answer that question? If the answer is no, or I'm not sure, I would say, hey, take some time with this. You might want to go home and and take out a piece of paper and write on top, why is Jesus my hope? And spend some time with it. Like, what would I say? Why, Why do I hope in Jesus? And write some things down. Here's how I personally think about Jesus being my hope. Uh... I would say that I've found that there is no one else but Jesus who can answer the biggest questions in my life uh, with the satisfaction and with the authority that Jesus can. Questions like How did I get here? What's my purpose? What's the good life? How, How do I deal with the brokenness of the world? How do I get forgiveness? What do I do with the problem of death? I think someone would have to be both creator and redeemer to answer those questions with authority, right? I think someone would have to be both God and man to understand me and my humanity and yet connect me to eternity. And so, of course, Jesus is my hope. There's no one else like Him. Now, in a conversation, you can go, you can talk about any aspect of those. But that's, I I tend to think about how He's answered these questions in my life. Peter says, make sure Jesus is actually your hope. Be able to talk about why he is your hope. And then finally, he says, talk about Jesus with gentleness and respect. Don't you love that he adds that? Be gentle and respectful in the way that you talk about your hope. Nobody wants to talk to somebody who's arrogant, brash, rude, defensive. Just be gentle and respectful. Like, if you don't know the answer to a tough question, what do you say? That's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I'm willing to investigate it further. Would you be willing to investigate Jesus further? I'd love to keep talking about this. And by the way, tell me about you. What what do you put your hope in for, for life? What, what do you put your hope in for death? Like where, where do you get hope? It's just a dialogue. We're not trying to win an argument. We're actually trying to win a person. So just continue the dialogue, right? Continue inviting them in to the conversation and really care in a genuine way with what they say. Gentleness and respect. Verse 18, I think, tells us why Jesus is our hope. Look at verse 18. This is why Jesus is our hope. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, why? That he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to this triune God that we've been worshiping uh, today. Through Jesus, we get access to God. We get to come into the presence of God. We get to do life with God, both now and for eternity. That's our hope. Our hope is not that we get to go to heaven someday, right? Our hope is not in a place. It's in a person. It's not where we are. It's it's who we're with, right? Our hope is is life in the presence of God, the one who made us, the one who knows us, the only one who can truly give us significance and satisfaction and salvation. That's our hope. Did you know that at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, it says that at the end of all things, heaven is actually going to come down to earth. In Revelation 21, it says the new Jerusalem, the city of God, comes down to the new earth. Listen to this. Revelation 21, verse 3, talks about how God is going to dwell with us on a redeemed earth. This is what the verse says. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, the kingdom of God is going to come to earth, and that we're going to live forever in God's presence uh, on a redeemed earth, and all will be good. That will be shalom. That will be shalom. That is our hope. That's what Jesus brings us. That's good news that we ought to proclaim, right? In a culture where we've lost our voice, how do we proclaim that good news? We do it with our deeds, which don't point to our goodness. They point to the goodness of Jesus. And we do it with our words, which don't point to how great we are. They point to how great Jesus is and how our hope is in Him. Let's pray and thank the Lord and ask Him to make us this kind of church. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.